Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. I'm still coasting in the energy of International Women's Day and feeling really grateful for the women in my life, the relatives and friends, collaborators and teachers, wise women, elders, sisters, artists, visionaries, healers, leaders, the women that I turn to for support and inspiration and love who offer their various gifts in the present, and also my ancestors, the women who gave me life, and the elders whose wisdom we need desperately in this time of change and challenge. The women who went before paved the way, paved so many ways, and as I consider what it takes today to follow in those footsteps, the word that comes to my mind is tenacity. Tenacity. I define this as a particular blend of devotion and courageous persistence. Now, Today, I want to tell you a story from Egyptian mythology about the goddess Isis and the husband-brother god Osiris. Isis is a very complex goddess, healer, mother, and magician in service to life in all of its forms. And I often invoke her when I am in need of an image of this tenacity. I think when I tell you the story, the reasons why will become clear. But so let me tell you just a little bit more about her before we move to the story. Isis was a central goddess in Egyptian culture. She even overtook Re, the sun god, who was the supreme deity in this Egyptian pantheon. According to the myths, Isis fashioned a serpent out of clay that bit the god Re. And she agreed to heal him if he would reveal to her his secret name, his true name. And so in the myths, Isis is often referred to as mistress of the gods, she who knows Re by his very name. Egyptian culture is extremely old. I mean, to put the age of this in some kind of perspective... Egypt was already really old in the days of Caesar. His affair and that whole love triangle with Mark, Antony, and Cleopatra, that occurred in the final decades, shortly before Egypt was annexed by the Romans. Recorded history in Egypt was already a couple thousand years old, so the cult of Isis and Osiris is at least 4,000 years old. Now, I say at least 4,000 years old. Uh, It's not precise, of course, because Egyptian culture, like all cultures, began as an oral tradition. And then many of the Egyptian texts on papyrus haven't survived. My version of the story is based on Plutarch from the first century. And his version of this myth of Isis and Osiris 
is the fullest and best known narrative. Now, there was an ongoing cultural exchange, not only between the Romans and the Egyptians, but also between the Egyptians and Greece. So you may hear some parallels between the myth of Demeter and Persephone in this story. And Isis was also closely associated with the Greek goddess Aphrodite. I want to dedicate this telling of this myth to my Muslim sisters around the world and to all those who are fighting for the human rights, respect, and dignity of women around the world. I stand in awe of your willingness to embrace horrifying and painful situations and your capacity to transform them with great courage, humor, and creativity. So now I invite you to sit back and enjoy the story and make note of the moments that speak to you. The moments that grab your attention are invitations that you've issued to your own sweet self to mine the gold that you need right now from this story. The Goddess Isis and the God Osiris A long, long, long time ago, when the Nile first began to flood and replenish the Egyptian delta, the god Osiris became king of the people. Osiris inherited the throne from his father, Geb, the earth. Now at that time, the Egyptians were barbarous cannibals. They didn't know how to live together or how to take advantage of the gifts of the Nile River. Osiris taught the Egyptians what to eat. He showed them the useful grains, like barley, and he taught them how to plant and harvest, how to bake bread and make beer. He showed them which animals are proper and good to eat and how to hunt and cook them. Osiris also gave the Egyptians laws. He taught them how to maintain cosmic harmony through right relationship to the gods. When Osiris had bestowed all of these gifts on the Egyptians and was done sharing the cornerstones of their civilization, he decided to travel the world to teach other people. He asked his wife and sister, the goddess Isis, who was the paragon of motherly virtues and a wielder of many forms of magic, to rule the kingdom in his absence. Isis did this. She did this very, very well for many years, and the Egyptians flourished. As it turned out, the world needed a lot of civilizing, and so Osiris was gone for so long, so long, that he became almost just a memory in the minds of the people. He was good, he was kind, he was generous. Everyone respected and loved him. Everyone, that is, except his brother Seth. Seth, the red-faced god of harsh, hot desert winds, war, and chaos. Seth was the opposite of all that was moist and cool and dark that was resident in the god Osiris. Seth was jealous, jealous of the respect that Osiris had gained, and he coveted the throne, the power, and the queen Isis. Now, Isis was stuck dealing with Seth for 
centuries by herself. And she was no fool. She managed to keep Seth somewhat under control and at arm's length. But he secretly appealed to some other malcontents, others who started simmering and resentments and bickering during the long absence of their king. And together with these malcontents, Seth hatched a plan. He gathered 72 co-conspirators, and they decided that they would uh, do something about Osiris when he finally returned to Egypt, which he did. At long last, Osiris came home, and the Egyptians were overjoyed. They filled the streets with dancing and singing. They flocked into the temples to thank the gods. And Seth decided to host a big party to welcome his brother home. He spared no expense. The night of the party was warm and soft, and the stars were bright. There was wonderful food and drink, sweet music, and beautiful dancing girls. All of this charmed Osiris. Seth brought forth the best of everything, and all of the guests were having a very, very, very good time. The thing is, all of the other party guests were Seth's co-conspirators. All 72 of them were present, eating and drinking with the good king, toasting his health. So Osiris, he didn't expect or suspect any trouble. Why would he feel any danger in the palace of his brother? When the festivities were at their height, Seth ordered the musicians to put down their instruments, and he waited for the room to get quiet. Welcome, friends, he said, to this celebration in honor of the great king Osiris, my beloved brother. May he live long and see his people thrive. Everyone clapped. Seth continued, I have something beautiful to show you, an object that I treasure above any other. I want to share it with you tonight because I have decided in honor of my brother and of his vast, gracious, and generous nature to give it to one of you as a gift. The curtains at the back of the hall parted, and six servants came out bearing a sarcophagus made of cedar and ebony from Lebanon. This was not that soft palm wood that was found in Egypt. No, this was the imported beautiful wood, and it was inlaid with ivory and gilded with gold. The interior of this sarcophagus was painted with fantastic images of animals and celestial bodies. It was very beautiful, finely conceived, and skillfully crafted. The guests ooed and awed. No one had ever seen anything quite so exquisite, and Seth basked in the compliments. Then he said, I will make a gift of this fine sarcophagus in honor of my brother. I will give this box to whoever fits inside. Osiris was, of course, a polite and kindly and generous king, and so he urged the other guests to try their luck. And each of the 72 other guests took his turn. 
Some of them were too short, and some of them were too tall. Some of them were too fat. Some of them were too thin. No one fit perfectly into the sarcophagus. And so now they urged Osiris to try it, and he lowered himself into the box. It fit him perfectly. No surprise, because Seth had had the box made especially for his brother to his precise dimensions. Delighted, Osiris cried, Why, my brother, I think this fine coffin is now mine. Indeed it is, Seth hissed. And with the 72 co-conspirators, they slammed down the lid and hammered it shut with long nails. Then they sealed the edges with molten lead and dropped the beautiful box containing the god Osiris into the Nile River. Osiris was soon dead. And the coffin floated quietly and smoothly in the river currents for many miles down to the sea. After a number of days, the coffin came to rest on the shores of Syria, near the city of Byblos. And there it lodged at the foot of a tamarisk tree, which grew up around it. This was a magnificent tree, a huge tree. And before long, Osiris and the coffin were completely hidden in the center of it. The tree gave off a very sweet and special fragrance. And so, after a time, people noticed the tree, and they told their neighbors about it. And this tree became a bit of a tourist attraction. No one knew that the tree was actually a tomb. No one knew about the sarcophagus and the god inside. And then finally, the king and the queen of Byblos heard about the tree, and they came to see it. And the king was so taken with its tremendous size, its beauty, and its sweet, sweet fragrance, that he ordered the tree be cut down and installed as one of the pillars that held up his palace. In the meantime, back in Egypt, Isis was grief-stricken at the sudden disappearance of her husband. She cut her hair, and she mourned. But she didn't just sit around weeping. Isis suspected that Seth was involved, and she was determined to find Osiris, but she didn't have any idea where to look. So she journeyed up and down the Nile, asking everyone that she met if they had seen her husband. Each person said no. But then one day, Isis encountered some children playing on the banks of the Nile. Hello, my children, she said. She called all children my children because they were her metaphorical, spiritual children. Tell me, have you seen your king, the good king Osiris? No, my lady, they answered. But we did see a beautiful box of cedar and ebony and gold float by. Isis thought this beautiful box floating unattended down the Nile River was an event too strange to ignore. So she journeyed back down the Nile herself, on her back, floating gently, in the manner of a coffin that might 
contain her husband, Osiris. She floated for a number of days, and then she reached the ocean. And after some more time, she came ashore in Syria, near the city of Byblos. Now the goddess Isis had a clue about where to look for her husband. It wouldn't do any good to intimidate the people of Syria before she had a plan, she thought, so Isis disguised herself as an old woman, and then she went to the palace. There she asked if she could join the court of the queen. The queen wasn't present, and so Isis, as an old woman, sat down with the queen's maids and showed them how to braid their hair. When the queen arrived, she noticed the braids, and she also noticed that her lady smelled so lovely and so sweet. The fragrance that you smell, her ladies told her, is due to that old woman over there. The queen was very taken with the presence and the sweet scent of that old woman, and so Isis was admitted to the court. Once she entered the throne room, she saw and smelled the tamarisk tree, and she knew that Osiris was in that pillar. Isis went to the king of Byblos and immediately dropped her disguise. Well, the king was shocked and amazed at the sight of this amazing goddess. And when she told him she must have that pillar and that she could remove it without bringing his palace down, he just shook his head and watched in wonder. Everyone in the court was dumbfounded. Isis took this pillar then back to Egypt. She did not want to underestimate the animosity of Seth, and so she went far into the reeds on a small island in the delta of the Nile. There, when she had the coffin safely hid away, she opened it and discovered the body of her husband. Osiris was quite dead, but he was a god, so he could be revived. The goddess Isis gathered her magic powers. She took a deep breath and turned herself into a kite. And in the form of this small bird, she hovered over the dead body of her husband, beating her wings. The moving air, like breath, filled the lungs of the dead god, and Osiris was revived. He stirred, and then he sat up. He embraced his wife and made love to her. And then he fell back into a near-death slumber. Isis, goddess that she was, intuited at once that she was pregnant, and she knew that she, bore a, she would bear a son, a son who would bring proper order to Egypt and avenge his father's murder. This son, indeed, was the falcon god Horus, who did do, just as his mother prophesied. Isis also knew that a more robust and permanent resurrection was possible for Osiris. Of course he was tired. He'd been dead for a long time. 
But she knew that she could bring him fully back to life. The thing was, though, she couldn't do it alone. So she went to the god Thoth. Thoth was accomplished and just. He was a kind of artist and alchemist, a man of letters among the gods. He knew all the ancient rituals and spells, and he told Isis that they could enact a ritual of life for Osiris that would probably work. Because he was a god, his body was intact, and he had only died once. No one had ever tried such a thing before, but it stood to reason that it would work. Now, as you might imagine, this ritual took a little bit of time to put together. And while Isis and Toth gathered the things that they would need and brought their powers together, Seth has heard rumors, rumors that Isis is living in the reeds, in the reeds. What would a goddess be doing in the reeds in the Nile River Delta? That seems strange. So one night, Seth went out hunting for boar under the full moon and headed for the delta. He found the small island, and Isis wasn't there, but he found the coffin and the body of Osiris. His brother was fast asleep. Seth was very angry and decided that he would not be foiled again, so he pounced onto his brother and tore his body into 14 pieces. The 14 pieces were scattered across the countryside, and as a final coup de grace, he took the last piece, his brother's phallus, and dropped it into the Nile, where it was eaten by a large fish. And then Seth slipped away. When Isis returned from her meeting with Toth and saw the empty coffin, She was devastated, devastated, now what? But she was as determined as Seth. The local birds told Isis about the dismemberment, but no one knew what had happened to all of the body parts. So Isis enlisted the help of her sister, Depenthes, and the two goddesses flew up and down, up and down the banks of the Nile, with the assistance of various birds, back and forth, back and forth, all around the countryside. They found the pieces and parts of Osiris. They found the pieces and parts of Osiris, all but the phallus. They gathered up what they had and laid out the god. They sang magic songs. And Isis made her husband a phallus out of gold. All, she thought, is not lost. The jackal-headed god Anubis came and stitched the body back together. Toth performed the ritual of life, and Osiris came back to life. He came back to life, but he could not rejoin the world of the truly living, not after this last dismemberment adventure. But now the earthly realm where we eat and walk is not the only world. The great father god Atum made Osiris king of the underworld, that other place that we all must visit. 
and there Osiris became the judge of the dead. In the underworld, he sat with the jury of the gods and oversaw the moral evaluation of each new arrival. As you may know, the heart of a deceased person was placed on the scale and weighed against the feather of Matt, Matt, the cosmic order, that which is just. The feather is the embodiment of truth, and if the heart's weight was equal to that of the feather, the person has lived a just life. A just life means you're allowed to proceed into one of two fates. You can either join Ra's crew on the sunboat or ask Osiris for a place in his court in the underworld. If your heart is too heavy or too light, a monster, part hippo, part lion, and part crocodile, will eat you. Osiris is there to make sure the process is fair, and he was once again a good and kind king of the people. As for the goddess Isis, she dedicated herself to her son and with great cunning protected him and helped him eventually win the throne from Seth. Seth and Horus fought for many years, just as the struggle between order and chaos, light and dark, or in the case of Egypt in those ancient days, north and south, rarely ceases. The balance that we seek is always momentary. In the image of the goddess Isis and the god Osiris, we have a partnership, a partnership of the feminine and masculine in service to life, dedicated to the people, to the land, and to each other. You may recognize in this story the themes of resurrection and the promise of life after death for good people that is an antecedent to Christianity. And over the centuries, the name Isis has been invoked in cults and gatherings based on the supremacy of love and the divinity of nature. At the outset of this program, I said I dedicated it to my Muslim sisters and to all those who are fighting for the human rights of women around the world. I recently saw a trailer for a documentary film called Honor Diaries that's about the lives of women in traditional honor-based societies and the crimes that are committed against them in the names of religion. It was really wrenching, just what I saw in this trailer. And I later discovered that some of the screenings of this documentary uh, are being attacked in the United States. The makers of this film, many of whom are Muslims, but not all, are being labeled Islamophobes. And this debate got me thinking about the challenge of tolerance and respect for difference. Religious freedom is an important value. We do realize that there are different standards and different cultural values. But what we want to call tolerance can also be cowardice. It can be a cover for willed ignorance so that we can avoid the pain that awareness will bring, pain and the responsibility to act. One of my challenges as a mythologist is to reconcile mythologies and their ongoing relevance with their use to oppress women, to to oppress women, to oppress other species, our fellow creatures, and to keep us in a separate, alienated position from the rest of the cosmos. 
one of the reasons that I tell stories is because I feel that the first step in taking this apart, in disassembling this use of mythology as something that can dominate and oppress, is the recognition that we are in myth, that we are living with a story consciousness. When we recognize things as myths, we are free to accept or reject them. The ability to see things as myths is an antidote to fundamentalism. And fundamentalism is a way of thinking. It's an insistence on absolutes, on the truth and the way that easily becomes my truth and my way. Fundamentalism seeks to control and dominate, and it's not limited to religious or mythological systems and practice. Any area of life where you won't broker disagreement, where you feel threatened by an alternative point of view, is ripe for exploration. And I encourage you to track down the fear that is behind it. Fear of what is other creates the phobias that plague us. Fear of uncertainty and vulnerability, the vulnerability that is our human state, and the interdependency that many of us have been conditioned to deny. In addition to practicing the use of stories and cultivating this story consciousness, this ability to see through and think in terms of myth, I ask myself a question with as much honesty as I can muster. When I am confronted by something that demands a moral position, I ask myself, is this belief or practice concerned with love or power? Is it in service to life? In other words, would the goddess Isis do it? I honor the women in the world and the energies that we call feminine, and I look forward to the day when we see our own magnificent selves and the divine images that we create, and when honoring a goddess or a saint leads to the honoring of flesh and blood women by all peoples around this beautiful world. That's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. If you're finding something of value in Myth in the Mojave, please join the Myth in the Mojave community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the Myth in the Mojave programs, everything new I create, and you play an essential role in making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive. Thank you.